Hello and welcome once again to another edition of the Cover Crop Strategies podcast. I'm your host, Noah Newman, Associate Editor. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsor, Lacrosse Seed. Solving the soil health puzzle, Lacrosse Seed has you covered. Cover crops are an important piece to future profit, but it takes work and is puzzling at times. Lacrosse Seed delivers quality soil first cover crop products, plus training and tools to help you succeed. Whether you're looking to grow your cover crop seed business, get product tips, or find a local soil first dealer, Lacrosse Seed is ready to help. Learn more at soilfirst.com. That's soil1st.com or call 800 356 seed. All right, this week, managing editor Julia Gerlach sits down with Jim Studi, an independent research agronomist who's been studying cover crops since the 1980s. That is a long time. On this edition of the podcast, Studi shares the latest analysis on glyphosate resistant weeds, specifically water hemp, ragweed, and mare's tail, including an on farm trial that resulted in a 98% reduction in weed numbers. Studi also discusses some key findings from his graduate study on yield response to different cover crop species. So without further ado, here's Jim Studi. Yes, I am a city boy. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and currently live for the past 30 years on a farm my dad grew up on. Became very interested in agriculture early on, spending time um, down here on the farm. And let's be frank, it had to do with equipment operation. And then later on, I got really turned on by biology and realized, hey, you know what? Agriculture and combines equipment operation with biology. So from there on, it was giddy up. Did an undergraduate in, uh, at UW-Madison. Started farming here while working an off-farm job and flunked out of farming. Went to graduate school based on a key question I had. I need to cut my input costs. What about this age-old practice of green manuring, which I saw my grandpa do here on the farm? So I went to an extension forage agronomist and asked him about that. And he gave me a publication. So this is in the late 80s. He gave me a publication from 1973, an extension bulletin from Wisconsin that cited data from Iowa in the mid 50s. And I thought that's all we got. There's, this is wide open, so let's work on it. So I went to uh, UW-Madison graduate school, both degrees, and studied the practice of green manuring. So we didn't know, in what we call cover cropping now, with legume cover crops. At the time, we didn't know what would work, when to plant it, what have you. So we worked out some of the agronomy. We did species screening to find productive legumes that could grow in any number of um, combinations, interseeded with small grains, seeded after small grain harvest, after canning crops, interseeded in corn, which is a totally different environment than we have now because now with the glyphosate ready trait or glyphosate tolerant trait, we can interseed and still get full weed control early on. We didn't have that option, so we had to time it with a short residual product. And as soon as we thought that the residual was gone, we interseeded and it didn't work. So anyway, here we are. Things are a lot, a lot different. So then uh, my path professionally was as a county-based extension educator here in Southeast Wisconsin, two different positions, and also with the Michael Fields Institute 
in East Troy, which is a nonprofit dedicated to um, sustainable agriculture, whatever sustainability looks like. But it's the same practices we talk about as in regenerative. So cutting tillage, cover cropping, and diversified crop rotations, that kind of thing. And so currently I am an independent um, research agronomist. I am really interested in, well, the issue of economics with cover crops. And I have of the firm belief based on my own experience, my experience talking with farmers and what the social science um, literature tells us about what it's gonna take to adopt. And it's economics, purely economics. Everyone else is working on soil health and that's good for them. And I think somewhere there's an interface between the two of them, but I'm looking at the bottom line, the impact on yield and minimizing the cost of the cover crop so we can produce a positive return on investment. And if we can do that, people will do it as a routine practice to increase their bottom line. Concurrently, I'm also really interested in the issue of glyphosate resistant weeds. So here in Southeast Wisconsin, we have the big three, giant ragweed, which I have a population on my farm, which the university is trying to confirm is resistant. I know from experience with it, if it's not resistant, it's ultra tolerant and it creates a problem. Uh, Mare's tail and water hemp. And not only here in Southeast Wisconsin, but that's also um, pretty much ubiquitous amongst the states of the upper Midwest. So I'm interested in using the practice of planting green to suppress that. So if you look at um, more survey data and in particular, the SARE annual cover crop survey, which they've been doing since 2012, the cover crop people say, we see enhanced weed control or weed suppression, so it cuts our weed control cost. And so I'm trying to put a number on it. And then experimentally, I noticed we were forced into, in one of my on-farm trials, we were forced into a situation because of a wet spring from going from a planned burn down to a plant green terminate later. And I just happened upon the observation that in the plots where we terminated late, the planting green plots, there was no water hemp. But in the control, which is a no cover treatment, there was water hemp. Mm. Hey, there's something here, something what the farmers are saying in the SARE survey. Let's look at it. Let's put a number on it. How much suppression? And sure enough, so I've got a trial that I'm looking at. Suppression of the big three, water hemp doesn't show up for whatever reason. So maybe that's just a good reason to do it on my farm so it doesn't show up. <laughs> but the uh, point is that we are seeing suppression. And last year, so I've got one year of data, not enough to draw firm conclusions from, but in a drought year, which we had last year, we saw 98% suppression compared to the, the planting green treatment, late termination, compared to the control, which is following University of Wisconsin Extension, best management practices, recommendations, 98% reduction in um, the weed numbers, which I think is huge from a resistance management standpoint, because not only do we have fewer weeds that we need to apply an active, a newer active ingredient to, but also the potential for one application per year. So that's less exposure to these individuals. If that works out to be true, then this could be a resistance management um, strategy. Mm -hmm. So just talk about that system a little bit more. So you're saying you would be, uh, you're planting 
your corner soybeans into rye. When are you doing the burn down or when would you be recommending it? So in this trial, it is specific to soybeans. So okay. it's rye planted into corn stalks. Mm -hmm. And um, what we're looking at is no cover crop. So we're using cereal rye for the cover crop, no cover crop. Um, and we're also looking at seeding rate, which turns out to really not matter as far as the effect on the following crop. As far as biomass production, yes. Canopy, yes, but not as far as the effect on the following crop. So two different seeding rates, plan burn down before planting, or we plant green and then terminate later. In this particular trial, what we're looking at is very late termination. So it's at anthesis pollination. And so we've got the two polar extremes of controlling the cover crop before planting or way at the end. And the reason for the anthesis or the pollination treatment is rye has reached its maximum biomass accumulation, vegetative growth at that point. Mm -hmm. So we've got the polar extremes. So we're looking at that. In reality, it's probably somewhere in between. So the take home message was we did have weed suppression, but in a drought year because of excess moisture use to get that additional growth that suppressed the weeds, we saw a 30% yield reduction and that is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. So our next generation study is to look in between. And so I'm going to work on setting that up for next year. Mm -hmm. Stay tuned. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And you're not doing any roller crimping in this study then? No, it's, um, there's no roller crimping involved. I've got experience in doing it, uh, doing roller crimping specifically with rye um, and some other cover crops just for fun. Buckwheat works great. Oh. Sun hemp works great. Rye, not so much. So to the people that are doing it and doing it successfully, Congratulations, because it's difficult getting the timing right, getting the soil moisture conditions right. So when you crimp it, you're cutting it or crimping it like you're supposed to, and you get termination and it stays laid down. My experience is it always stands back up. Mm -hmm. Come do it again, because that was fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've heard that there's something very specific about um, you have to be able to crimp the inner nodes of the rye at least twice or something. Right. And so that would be very difficult, to, especially with certain equipment. I mean, in some cases, maybe those blades aren't close enough on the equipment or the, the rye hasn't elongated enough to make that possible. Or the soil is too hard or too soft. So there's definitely an art to it, like, yeah. like farming and a lot of stuff we do. So you got to get the conditions just right. And that's kind of luck also, yeah. luck involved. Well, it's so interesting to me that you've been studying cover crops for so long. I mean, really, since the sometime in the 80s, you've been you've been studying this. And um, so you you were talking about, when you were talking about what you did in graduate school, that was your PhD project that you worked on. Your right, thesis. right. And uh, were there some specific uh, things you learned from that that were surprising to you? There were, and uh, in a very pleasant way, because mo like most researchers, we are advocates. So in my ideal world, every acre would be no-till. If soil conditions are right. There are some soil types we can't no-till in. But you know, if you're gonna go to that extreme to no-till, then let's put a cover crop in because the two were made for each other. And there's a lot of management um, flexibility that cover crops give you in no-till where the ground is maybe a little slower to dry out uh, with the cover crop. And that's the strategy I used on my farm this year. Let's have the cover crop there, watch it. We did have a wet spring, watch the ground when 
the ground's dried up enough that I can successfully plant, plant, and then terminate the cover crop so we don't have competition with the primary crop. And what I was concerned about was corn. Um, soybeans, to me, that's a no-brainer. But corn, I was a little concerned about it. So what we looked at in this trial, I was interested early on in the nitrogen question. And so this was when the sustainable ag movement was starting up and they were focused on energy. So the manufacture of synthetic energy, synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, takes an incredible amount of fossil energy. So my idea was to reduce the industrial fixed nitrogen and the energy use with biologically fixed nitrogen. So for my five years in graduate school, I ran a trial for rotational cycles, the cover crop followed by the response crop. And what we were doing was basically looking at response crop, response, yield response to the different cover crops. And so we, we looked at the same five. There was two alfalfa varieties, uh, red clover, sweet clover, and hairy veg. And so we're looking at yield response and, you know, just observations, what works, what doesn't, what are the pest interactions, what have you. So of those five, we found that two were consistently the most productive year in and year out. We had some really, really ideal conditions. We had some wet years. We had some dry years. Their performance was consistent. And so that's kind of a risk management, a way to look at it from a risk management standpoint is we get consistency because cycling and boom and bust doesn't do you any good when you're trying to farm for average to make money. So with those two, so it was red clover and it was hairy vetch. The red clover was interseeded with a small grain. The hairy vetch was planted afterwards. And so what we did was look at the synchrony between the decomposition of the legumes, the mineralization of the nitrogen, and the uptake by corn. So in and of itself, that's not the full picture. We need to compare that to commercial nitrogen fertilizer. So our treatments were the two legumes, um, a control zero, so in the zero control, no fertilizer nitrogen, um, otherwise, the rotation and everything was the same as when we grew the legumes. Same rotation, no cover, but then 160 pounds of nitrogen fertilizer, which at the time was for that soil type, the recommendation of University of Wisconsin Extension. So in the cover crops, we measured how much biomass was there, how much nitrogen was in that biomass. So we did that right at planting. We used a technique with residue bags. So we took the samples, we washed them so we could get an accurate fresh weight free of soil. We buried them in the residue bags. The residue bags had pores that were large enough that they would allow soil water and the solution with soil bacteria, soil fungi to have intimate contact with the tissues, but small enough to keep the earthworms and whatever might have carried some of our tissue off. So we buried those bags. Concurrently, we planted corn and we applied the commercial fertilizer as ammonium nitrate, so it was 100% available. Throughout the growing season and during the first four weeks, we sampled at, two, at weekly intervals and then we went to two weeks after that. And so at our sampling time, 
we dug up some of these bags at different heights in the profile so that we could see if there was a difference. Did it have to be buried deep? Was shallow okay? Um, and I should say this is conventional tillage. I would really like to do this in no-till, but that's another story. We took soil samples to the depth of three feet. So we, in the top foot, we went down six inches and then six to 12, and then from there, second foot, third foot. Same time, we took up, and what we were measuring there was plant available nitrogen, so any mineral nitrogen. We did some speciation, was it ammonium, was it um, nitrate, but just based on budgetary constraints, we. We, we grouped it together and said, this is plant available mineral nitrogen. Concurrently, we took corn samples, dry matter samples, and analyzed them for total dry matter and nitrogen content. So what we found was stunning to me and very gratifying. In the case of the legume um, decomp decomposition and mineralization, we lost 50% of that tissue nitrogen within the first month. The result was a pool of plant available nitrogen in the soil before the period when corn began its period of rapid uptake. So we we're building, like you do with fertilizer application, building that pool so when that magic day comes and corn goes from taking up very little nitrogen to needing one pound per acre per day, we were there we delivered. So the synchrony there worked very well. In the case of the fertilizer nitrogen, because we applied it plant available in a plant available form, right away there was a spike in availability. So what the legumes did was delay that spike and that's really important from an environmental standpoint because if we had gotten really heavy rainfall and more than what the soil could hold, it would have leached and it would have taken the nitrate nitrogen with it. Or if it had ponded, we would have lost the nitrate nitrogen into the air as nitrous oxide. So in effect, what we were doing by delaying the mineralization, we were timely from a corn standpoint, but minimized the potential for environmental risk. At the end of the day, no significant difference between the legumes and the full nitrogen rate, but they were all significantly greater than the zero fertilizer, which you would expect. No, we we no, put on no difference in terms of yield. In terms of yield, yeah, right. Oh, that's so amazing. Great. Let's take a quick time out. Back to the podcast in just a second, but once again, let's thank our sponsor, Lacrosse Seed, solving the soil health puzzle. Lacrosse Seed has you covered. Cover crops are an important piece to future profit. But it takes work and is puzzling at times. Lacrosse Seed delivers quality, soil-first cover crop products, plus training and tools to help you succeed. Whether you're looking to grow your cover crop seed business, get product tips, or find a local soil-first dealer, Lacrosse Seed is ready to help. Learn more at soilfirst.com. That's soil1st.com or call 800-356-SEED. Now, back to the podcast. So at the end of the day, we learned that the legumes released over the growing season, 70% of their available nitrogen. So that means there's 30% still in the pool and presumably the easy stuff was mineralized. So this is the harder to break down stuff. 
available for next year's crop. Mm -hmm. We went to three feet again at the end of the season to see what was left over as far as nitrate nitrogen, which could potentially leach and become an environmental concern over winter. In this case, the exact opposite react or um, relationship. The two legume treatments were no different than the zero nitrogen control treatment, which were all significantly less than the full rate of nitrogen fertilizer. So that's good news. We we're in very good synchrony. We met corn's nitrogen needs. It was it showed up as corn yield, and we didn't have as great a potential economic impact, negative impact at the end of the season. That's Giddy up. That's amazing. It was. <laughs> yeah. So we did this for two years, and the two years were distinctly different. 1991, a very hot season, and moisture was just what we needed to get the crop crop to produce what were record corn yields in the state of Wisconsin for that year up until it got bumped off the throne. Very good growing conditions. The next year, 1992, cold and wet. Yields were mediocre for the growing season. They were acceptable for the type of conditions we had. But if you look at the relationships and you were to lay this out on a map, they would overlay perfectly. The difference was in the magnitudes. The legumes didn't produce quite the level of the available nitrogen spike. Corn yield wasn't where we were, and the corn uptake curve was delayed a little bit because corn development was delayed, but stunning. Two different years, same results. Yeah, that's amazing. And so you said you were doing this in conventional tillage, and basically this was a green manure application, meaning you were incorporating it into the um, dirt, into the soil? Or into something? the soil. It's dirt once you get it on your clothes. That's otherwise, right. it's soil. <laughs> it's dirt if right. it's under your fingernails. So at the time, and I can't tell you what the research literature was saying between, because I wasn't interested in no-till at the time, really. So I don't know if there was a difference. But at the time, the extension nitrogen credit said, Nitrogen credit for terminated forage, so old hay fields or cover crops, you needed to incorporate it to get the nitrogen benefit, the full credit. We now say that's not the case. The credit is there regardless of tillage system. So that's good news. That's one of the reasons why I would like to go back and look at it. Mm -hmm. But a trial like this takes a lot of money. Oh. And I would rather, we know it works. We have kind of indirect ways where we can measure it. I would rather spend the limited resources I have looking at yield response and getting people to use covers on more acreage. So why is that important to you? Uh, well, so I have a conservation ethic that I got it from my dad. And then I was fortunate enough to have Dr. Art Peterson for Soil Science 327 back in the 80s. So Art was one of the early individuals in soil conservation, and he worked as an extension specialist, but he also taught undergraduates. And so Dr. Peterson and Dr. Burl Lowry, they tag team, and they were both great. And they that was my favorite class by far at UW-Madison. I was like, yeah, we got to take care of our soil because guess what? They're not making any more of it. Right. Well, so the Polder region and Netherlands, but that takes a lot of, <laughs> a lot of work. So, <laughs> so never mind. So we need to protect it and we need to maintain the productivity for future generations. So we've all heard the 9 billion problem. So if 
past population trends hold true, we're going to have 9 billion people by 2050, and that's not that far off, that we need to feed. And so we can't be stressing our resource that we rely on if we're going to produce food and fiber for them. The other point is there's the issue of climate change. And so believe it or not, um, I can tell you the indications of climate change are all around you. We are facing dramatic changes in here in Southeast Wisconsin with uh, rainfall intensities, storm intensities, what used to be a hundred year storm. It's happening a couple of times a month. Come on, tell me something's not going on there. I, as a farmer, look at the difficulty that I have had over the course of my career in getting things done, whether it's windy for extended periods, whether we have really wet springs, really dry springs. I look at the weather conditions on my farm. The last four years are two standard deviations above my long-term mean of 30 years. So what that means is, so two standard deviations, 95% of the data. So we're on either end, two and a half percent on either side. To get four consecutive years where that's the case, that's a problem. We're losing our topsoil. We need to do something about it uh, on our farm, but also we need to do our part to take carbon dioxide, which is one of the drivers of climate change, take it out of play. So we're storing it, sequestering it in our root systems with cover crops, with no-till. So I've been doing this so long, I've screwed myself out of carbon markets and ecosystem markets, but I'm still doing it because it's the right thing to do, but it's protecting my farm. I want to pivot just a little bit uh, and ask you about a little bit more about glyphosate. Uh, we just kind of talked briefly about the possibility of uh, creating resistance in our cover crops to glyphosate, so resistant rye or something else. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So just in general, um, not that I'm a fan of biotech and here's the latest silver bullet. We are learning with resistance, whether it's the glyphosate or the corn rootworm BT trait that it took what, three years to get resistance to, there are no silver bullets. So management of pests, um, it takes an integrated approach. So it's cultural, rotating crops, um, roguing fields. If you see a weed that looks like it made it through an application, get out there and get rid of it so it doesn't produce resistant seed. Mm -hmm. um, varietal selection, just good farming practice. So. Among my neighbors, I was the first to adopt the glyphosate resistance trait in soybeans because it made no-till soybeans a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. And I used it, I worked at the time with UW Extension, the Extension weed scientists are saying, this is not a good thing. We are gonna develop resistance. So you need to follow best management practices. In beans where we were somewhat limited with the herbicides that we had, let's use it there, let's not use it in corn. It developed in corn, they kept saying, use it as a defensive trait in corn. We need it in soybeans because the options that we have have crop health issues. So. Um, that's the beauty thing of the glyphosate system in soybean. The soybeans, because of the way the tolerance works, they don't have to metabolize it. So it just knocks out one set of an enzyme from the 
it knocks out one set of two. So the trait gives you two sets, so double the amount of enzyme. Mm -hmm. So we knock out half of it, the soybean plant continues. That's why we have um, rate restrictions, single, end of, single application, as well as season long. So we don't ever overcome that. You can kill tolerant mm -hmm. soybeans with glyphosate. I've done it. Charging the boom and it's like, yeah, you sprayed enough and come back and it's dead. Okay. So you can kill Roundup beans with Roundup. Yes, you can. So no-till beans. And that's also, frankly, that is our weak link in conservation. It's not the, it's not the, the bean residue, but it's losing the corn residue. We need the corn residue because beans don't produce residue for the following crop. It made it easy. So we did it for a number of years. This works good. The university was arguing against it. I piloted UW Extension had a, a program called the Two-Pass Challenge. So the idea was to put on a pre-emergent herbicide. And so the educational psychology was, and they told us this up front, there's going to be no yield difference. The only difference is you got to make an earlier application that's putting on the pre-emergent herbicide, you're still going to put on one post versus post application of glyphosate versus maybe going in a two post program. At the end of the day, yield's going to be the same. Sure enough, it worked. So the problem is Roundup Ready corn came along and it's so easy and crop safety and crop health is there. So why wouldn't I do it? So we developed the resistance. The resistance that's on my farm uh, manifested itself in probably 2018. In 2019, for sure, I was really um, aware of it. I did everything right. I use the glyphosate trait in corn as a defensive thing. I will spot spray, but I haven't done a blanket application of glyphosate for uniform weed control, and I don't intend to. The glyphosate trait is in the corn that I get because I want the hybrid and I want the drought guard trait. Mm -hmm. It comes along with it, I pay for it, and it's there in case I need it. Mm -hmm. So we developed it. On my farm, I did everything right. It could be because our troublesome weeds, the giant rag, the mare's tail, the water hemp, they are outcrossers. The pollen could have drifted in from my neighbors and I got the problem. I have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I am. Yeah. So you called them outcrossers. Is are our cover crops also outcrossers? I mean, are, do we have the potential of creating that problem within our cover crops? We do have. So the winter rye and winter rye use, I'd like to say ubiquitous, it's not, but that's what everyone is using. So we are setting up a selection pressure with our use of glyphosate to terminate. And glyphosate is the, the best mode of action for doing that. But we are setting up a selection pressure and eventually we could get resistance. So the other, and this is a cover crop that I just love, annual ryegrass um, works really well as a cover crop. It's, it's got applications, um, aerial seeding into corn, um, standing corn, for example, or shortly after harvest, it's great. And it's got a different growth habit altogether. It spreads out, so it covers the ground more rapidly than cereal rye does. But we know that we have resistant populations. They've been documented in the research literature forever. And our seed comes from, believe it or not, New Zealand, Australia, where it's documented. 
So our weed scientists here are saying, don't do it, no cover crop. And I was like, wait a minute, let's watch what we're doing and be careful. I see. Watch for it. Mm -hmm. We don't want to lose one tool to keep another one. So it's always management. And so really what this gets to, as ag professionals, as farmers, watch your fields, watch for behavior that doesn't look right to you. And if that's the case, let's look at what's going on here and prevent problems from developing. Great stuff there. Thanks to Jim Studi and managing editor Julia Gerlach for that interview. Once again, before we go, let's thank our sponsor one more time, Lacrosse Seed. Solving the soil health puzzle, Lacrosse Seed has you covered. Cover crops are an important piece to future profit, but it takes work and is puzzling at times. Lacrosse Seed delivers quality, soil first cover crop products, plus training and tools to help you succeed. Whether you're looking to grow your cover crop seed business, get product tips, or find a local soil first dealer, Lacrosse Seed is ready to help. Learn more at soilfirst.com. That's soil1st.com or call 800 356 seed. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Until next week, remember, for all things cover crops, head to covercropstrategies.com.